Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Isla Earth is recorded on the campus of California State University, San Bernardino, and produced by the Catalina Island Conservancy, because Earth is an island. You're on board KCAA's Inland Talk Express. KCAA, Loma Linda, 1050 AM, the station that leaves no listener behind. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizowitz, and this is Climate Connections. The Bryant neighborhood of Ann Arbor, Michigan is a largely low-income area with modest single-family homes built in the 1970s. Resident Crystal Stewart says many of the houses have old windows, leaky roofs, and inefficient HVAC systems, so people often struggle with high energy bills. And they're, you know, living on a fixed income, and so they don't have the means to fix their home and make these repairs. Stewart works for the Community Action Network, a local nonprofit. The group has partnered with the city of Ann Arbor to make homes in Bryant more energy efficient and to help residents switch to HVAC systems and appliances that run on electricity, not oil or gas. Long term, the group also plans to install solar on all of the homes. The goal is to make this neighborhood one of the first, if not the first, carbon neutral neighborhoods in the U.S. Last year, her group won half a million dollars in grant funding that will be used to update, weatherize, and electrify about 20 homes in Bryant. Much more is needed to achieve the full vision, but it's a step towards helping residents enjoy the cost-saving benefits of clean, efficient technology. So that they can live comfortably and safely in their homes for years to come. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To hear more stories like this, visit climateconnections.org. prepared? Legacy Food Storage. The best way to protect your family is by being prepared. Go now to LegacyFoodStorage.com. Use coupon code HOM15 now for 15% off. Quick, go!
learn to make money five ways with rental real estate. Double your money with apartments and get your map to financial freedom. And that map starts with a free workshop. Sign up now at lifestylesunlimited.com. Click on the Join Free Workshop tab and attend online or in person. That's lifestylesunlimited.com. Lifestylesunlimited.com. Again, that's lifestylesunlimited.com. Limited seating, unlimited potential. For several years, KCAA has been marketing the Longevity brand of nutritional and personal care products. Our experience with Longevity has been 100% positive, so we are pleased to recommend them to you. Regarding nutritional supplements, we recommend Pollen Burst in the berry flavor and Tangy Tangerine 2.0 in the tablet form. For regularity issues, we recommend 3-Day Cleanse, and for personal care, we recommend Morning Hydration Cream. You can shop online for Longevity at www.kcaateam.com or you can order by phone by calling 800-982-3197 and tell customer support that you are part of the KCAA team. Longevity is an American company based in San Diego. Call Longevity at 800-982-3197 and ask about monthly auto ship that allows you to buy Longevity products at wholesale prices. That number again, 800-982-3197. Hi, Dr. Marissa here. You know me as the Asian Oprah and the host of my weekly talk radio TV show called Take My Advice. I'm not using it. Get balanced with Dr. Marissa. And I have some great news. I just got told I have the morning slot here at KCAA, the station that leaves no listener behind every Monday through Friday, 8 to 9 a.m., so I can't wait to talk at you so that you know your birthright to be happy 88% of the time. Tune in to KCAA, the station that leaves no listener behind. Express 106.5 FM. The number one FM talk radio station in the Inland Empire. KCAA, the station that leaves no listener behind. Express 106.5 FM. Check us out on Instagram where you can watch videos, see pictures, and listen to audio of all your favorite KCAA shows. That's right. KCAA 1050 AM is now on Instagram. Go get your account. We don't like to go out shopping. We don't care what's on sale. We just want to sit with the back. You've heard AM. You've heard FM. Now, tune into DM Radio the world's longest-running show about data. Each week, host Eric Cavanaugh interviews the brightest minds in the world of information management. Want to be on a show? Send an email to info at dmradio.biz. Now, here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. All right. 
right, ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome back once again to the longest running show in the world about data. It's called DM Radio. Folks, you're 16. Can you believe it? I was a lot younger when the show began and a lot less knowledgeable. And today we're going to ratchet up the, the uh, rhetoric, if you will, and talk about one of the absolute hottest topics in our business. No, it's not large language models or AI. Those are now the hottest topics for sure. But there's another topic that has really taken the imagination of this industry by storm, and that is this concept of a data mesh. And so before the show today, I was looking up, and of course, we'll have Jamak Degani on from Next Data to talk about that, formerly of ThoughtWorks. And I just did a, a Google search for top business use cases for data mesh. And oh my goodness, the sponsored links. You have to keep scrolling down these days to get past all those sponsored links. Of course, that's how Google's making lots of money. So who will tell you what data mesh is? Confluent and SnapLogic and Snowflake and Starburst Data and Atlan and IoT Business News and K2View and ThoughtWorks and Monte Carlo Data and Solutions Review and Estuary.dev and McKinsey and DCube and Monte Carlo Data again and Confluent again and SnapLogic again. <laughs> It just goes on and on and on. These are all all of these sponsored links trying to tell you what is a data mesh. Well, there are basic principles to data mesh. One is treating data like products. You want to create data products instead of just databases, for example. That's not a new idea, but it's a really maturing idea. I'll say that. And also localized management and costing, if you will, financing of data projects. So we're getting closer and closer to being able to work these things out. And the person who can certainly tell us what it is from the outset here is Jamak Degani from Next Data, dialing all the way in from across the planet. Uh, Jamak, tell us a bit about yourself and what is this data mesh thing? What are you trying to achieve? And let's get Jamak on the screen there. Go ahead, Jamak. Hi, Eric. Thank you for uh, hosting me. So I think data mesh was an antidote to the problems that the previous paradigms were creating for large and growing organizations that were complex. They had big data aspirations uh, and they need to innovate with data fast. Uh, but they were faced with kind of uh, monolithic bottlenecks. They couldn't innovate fast. They had a you know monolithic data team and a monolithic data warehouse or lake underneath that. Um, the time to get value from data was slow because they had to flow through the pipelines from left to right, from the left to right, from source to destination. I was taking a long time, and we had created a you know very fragile architecture. Right, every piece of these pipeline will fall apart, and it will have cascading effects, right. downtime effects. So, data mesh was an antidote to that. So, it analyzed kind of what was the fundamental challenges underpinning, um, you know, the, the symptoms of these challenges that we were seeing, and it offered uh, an alternative. And as you said, it was introduced really as a set of principles, as a, um, you know, four principles, which was first and foremost, um, getting the data ownership or giving the data ownership and data responsibility to the hands of people that are most, um, I guess, capable of managing and owning the data long term as product, poor business domains. As we know, business is moving fast. It has to respond at the speed of the market. It has to manage the data, you know, as close to the market as possible. So instead of having the data owned and managed and controlled by a centralized data team under the CDO, the proposition was let's give the data ownership and responsibility to the business domains that are tech aligned. And you know, they have tech teams, they have data teams, and they have analytics teams and AI teams, and they're focused on the business and they understand the data. So that domain ownership of the data is the first principle of that. And then following that to avoid a whole bunch of like challenges that would arise from this decentralized ownership of the data, 
there were other pillars introduced that seem to have found the life of their own, like data as a product became a thing in itself. Um, as you said, data as a product or data products, long-standing products that these teams own and share and you know, try to delight the experience of the consumers of the data, data scientists, data analysts across the organization or beyond the organization is the second pillar enablement of these teams, these autonomous teams to own and manage the data through a self-serve platform was the third pillar. And finally, a new model of governance that allows decentralization and yet having some level of standardization and cohesion across these teams with federated computational governance. And none of these, by the way, was novel and new. All of these principles had already been proven, tested, applied in the operational world, in the app dev world, where we moved from you know, right. in, at the edge of digitalization, we moved from centralized monolithic teams and IT teams to domain-oriented kind of services teams. It's just applied now to the world of data. So in short, it's just a, you know, decentralized socio-technical approach to managing and sharing and accessing data, particularly for analytics and AI. Yeah, no, those are excellent uh, foundational components. And uh, we were talking before the show about this analogy of Kubernetes, because you mentioned a monolithic architecture and monolithic, just for those who don't know, if you're an SAP, for example, SAP is a monolithic application. It is this huge pile of code that's supposed to do all these different things. And that's the way we used to build everything is in big piles of code to build huge applications like an enterprise resource planning system is tremendously complex. And then of course they went on, they bought some HR stuff and, and concur and all these other things that are each of them also monoliths that just kind of get bolted together in various ways uh, and processes. But that's not very agile, I guess, is the point, right? And when a system like that crashes or is going slowly, it can be very difficult to fix, to optimize, to figure out what the heck's going on. It's just difficult to deal with. And so what, com what comes along with this whole concept of Kubernetes, which is not just like virtualization, like VMware, but it's a similar objective with virtualization. They were trying to optimize the use of, of the storage and the compute and all that stuff because we were using very little of the of the processors, right? So it's like, well, let's get more value from our data center by virtualizing. Well, with Kubernetes now, you've kind of broken that monolith into thousands of little pieces, these little containers that are really system processes inside a little shell, and they get launched as needed to go do something. So there are a lot of cool things that spun out of that. There was also a whole array of security and governance issues that were born because of that. So that's why we have all these observability vendors now trying to help us understand what's going on out there. But what's cool is that instead, for example, for the audience to understand of a whole website like Twitter just crashing and now you can't get anywhere, maybe one little button on the page won't work. And the point is it's because it's all these little bits and pieces that are coming together as needed. And of course, all kinds of innovations have come around for being able to just knock those pods over when they're not working and, and send another one out there, right? So uh, there are other issues. I, I like to joke that we sacrificed a state at the altar of scale with all this new modern data stack stuff. It's like, yeah, we can scale up, but we still have to manage state somewhere. So that's a bit of a challenge, but it is a much more efficient system, especially in terms of the granularity of things. And, and I think that it has enabled the data mesh sort of de facto architecture because you're talking about breaking up what was again a bunch of monoliths connected by pipes into a much different kind of fabric right T tell us a bit about that jamar yeah absolutely i think the analogy of kubernetes and the whole movement around microservices and all the technology that came around to support that model of operation right so if you think about 
kind of service-oriented or microservices op as an operating model, uh, data meshes like that is an operating model. It's in is different from the current, as you said, the current operating model is diverse sources, silo sources, pipelined in centralized storage, layered by you know semantic access governance. That's an operating model, and then we have technology that enables different phases of this operating model. Data mesh is a new operating model. It's a decentralized, it's self-contained, end-to-end responsibility of all the pieces that go into providing. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lively data, trustworthy data gets you know, localized to a team, and then they are interconnected through the different types of links, whether the links are, you know, consumption provider links or um, semantic data links. So this operating model now needs a new set of technology to enable it. So um, what we are working on is to think about, okay, how can we, you know, codify this now unit of operation, unit of exchange of value, this data products, and then how can we enable management of lifecycle management of this now unit of exchange of value data product on top of, you know, the lakes and the warehouse and the pipelines. I mean, these technologies are not going away. So, you know, people have made you know, tons of investments. So how can we now create a new operating system for this new operating model of data exchange? And I think this is an amazing space for innovation of the next generation data tooling that we'll see. Yeah, I'll throw one more question at you, then we'll get Sumit Palin from uh, from Ontotext and talk a bit about knowledge graphs and how they can kind of play into this equation. But I think one of the really cool things that's happening here is that you are facilitating the evolution of application design and developments away from the sort of monolithic approach into a very targeted process. Because what's happening is that there are so many new kinds of apps that can be built that are very, very purposely designed for specific use cases in businesses and are leveraging data or insights. And so instead of you know, building the old sort of monolithic approach of trying to solve some little problem of fly swatter, no, you just go build your fly swatter and you don't have to involve the factory anymore. You just go do it on your own. I mean, it's that's an interesting uh, example, I guess. But the point is there are little things that can be done to really help the business and you don't want to have to build another monolith to solve that, right? What do you think? It, absolutely. But also adding to that, we don't want to end up in a in a world where people are building a bunch of point solutions that they can't right. leverage each other, right. Right? right? So what I see is in organizations like kind of this bimodal, either you have this kind of every team is doing one point solution of data pipeline, moving data from one end to another end and having their own data silo and with ad hoc point to point data sharing, a whole lot of pipelines that just move data from one place to another place to another place. Like there's so much waste there right, right. that we can't really leverage. And then we kind of the knee jerk reaction to that was, well, let's build a data team, centralized data team and lake and where has that logically and rationally makes sense. And then the counter effect of that is, well, that's so slow because every change needs to go down a backlog of a central data team and a big, now big monolithic interconnected data definition and how, how we're going to even 
manage the definition of that while every business and every you know data point definition is kind of constantly changing. So I think the data mesh tries to find the balance between these two modes and say, how can we create this small localized end-to-end? -end, and by end-to-end, -end, I mean, you know, a unit that defines the data, defines data API, defines the pipeline, all of the pieces required to share data as a product, localize that, make that a small, empower the teams to go and build their own um, uh, you know, the, 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 I don't know, fly spray or whatever you call it. They need a solution. But yet build it in a way that enough of it is consistent and standardized so that can be shared and used by and discovered and understood by the rest of the organization. So that equilibrium between this like localization of autonomous team building data and yet right globalization of access and discovery of that data is kind of a sweet spot that data mesh tries to bring to life. Yeah, that's a really good point. And as uh, you're talking about being able to reuse component parts, so you build an engine, you build a certain kind of thing, and you want to be able to use that other places in the organization, don't always reinvent the wheel is really the mission here and enable discoverability. You get these large organizations, they can have data products that no one ever even sees and knows about. Well, then they can't yeah. use them. And so, you know, semantics comes into play. Lots of things come into play. We only got about five minutes left in the opening segment, but I do want to bring in Sumit uh, Powell from Ontotext. Uh, Sumit, first of all, you're a former Gartner analyst. You focused on lake houses and data warehouses, and lake house architectures and all this stuff. At a certain point, you're like, all right, guys, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, I just want to get my data. I just want to build some apps. What are your thoughts about this evolution and, and how big a deal data mesh is? Yeah, when I was at Gartner, one of the most common questions was, you know, organizations were craving for clarity. And one of the major questions was, do I go with data lakes, data, data lake house or data mesh? And that was sort of a wrong question to ask because as in a data mesh, you know, data mesh promotes this idea of decentralized data teams, right? Where each data team being a domain expert, they know the domain business rules, they know the domain data and the lakes data warehouses, lake houses are part of the data nodes that build the mesh, right? The data nodes interact each other, interact with each other to build the data mesh. Now, as you were, um, as, as Zamak, as you were talking, you mentioned semantically linking the data. And I think Eric, you also mentioned early on that how do you semantically make sense of all the data that is across all these different data teams, right? And that is where knowledge graphs come into the picture where knowledge graphs help you to build the context and the semantic meaning around the data that each of these decentralized data teams are building. The other part is around data sharing, right? As each data team is building their own full stack product or data product, they also, there is there are data like reference data, MDM data that needs to be referenced, shared, and Zamak, you mentioned the idea of data exchanges, right? Where these, if these business units, these teams need to exchange the data in a more standardized way, in a more controlled, governed way, where knowledge graphs can again come in, especially knowledge graphs built with RDF technology, which are, which GraphDB from Ontotext builds, helps to exchange the data in a more standardized way, right? For example, the whole idea about data contracts, right? Data products need to interact with each other reference each other with certain data contracts and knowledge graphs can help you to make sure that the data contracts are adhered to as these data teams are building their their products 
So those would be my thoughts in terms of how data, how knowledge graphs can, could be leveraged when you're building data mesh. Yeah, and uh, real quick here, you mentioned RDF, resource description framework. This is not a new concept. This has been around a long time. And you know, it's interesting, I remember, I mean, 15 years ago, almost 20 years ago, we were talking about how the semantic web will be web 3.0, right? That was going to be the big vision. The semantic web is going to get us there. It never really seemed to fully take off, but I, I certainly in the business intelligence space now see it all over the place. Like lots of vendors have their own semantic layers or they're leveraging other semantic layers for these express purpose of being able to kind of funnel the data into the right domain in the right area. So semantics clearly plays a role in data mesh, but it is finally taking off the, the, the keen value that semantics can provide. And that's something that RDF gives you, right? Exactly. RDF allows you to exchange data in a more systematic, standardized way with the data validations in place, with the data, um, with, 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 data, with the right kind of data quality, right? Which is, which is again, one of the other things about data mesh is to provide a trustable data that is governed across these data teams. So yes, yeah. Eric, Eric, you are spot on. Yeah, and so we have all these issues. We'll deal with them in the uh, upcoming segments like governance. What do we mean by governance? Well, who should have access to this data and who should not? Personally identifiable information is something that comes to mind, obviously. But governance goes beyond that. Governance really uh, goes to who should be doing what, who should be able to do what. But don't touch that dial, folks. We'll be right back. You are listening to DM Radio. Do you own a timeshare? Well, face the facts. You made a mistake. You made a bad purchase. A timeshare is not an investment. It's a money pit that continues forever. If you use your timeshare, that's great. But if you don't and you want to legally get out of your contract, call my friends right now at the Timeshare Exit Hotline. They're an experienced team of lawyers who help good people like you get out of a timeshare contract that they just don't want. Don't throw away your money on maintenance fees. Use it for things you really want. We can help you end your timeshare contract and stop the money drain immediately. If you are ready to move on with your timeshare, call our team right now. Cancel your timeshare now with a free call. 800-290-6705. 800-290-6705. 800-290-6705. That's 800-290-6705. Do you own a timeshare? Well, face the facts. You made a mistake. You made a bad purchase. A timeshare is not an investment. It's a money pit that continues forever. If you use your timeshare, that's great. But if you don't and you want to legally get out of your contract, call my friends right now at the Timeshare Exit Hotline. They're an experienced team of lawyers who help good people like you get out of a timeshare contract that they just don't want. Don't throw away your money on maintenance fees. Use it for things you really want. We can help you end your timeshare contract and stop the money drain immediately. If you are ready to move on with your timeshare, call our team right now. Cancel your timeshare now 
with a free call. 800-290-6705. 800-290-6705. 800-290-6705. That's 800-290-6705. Do you own a timeshare? Well, face the facts. You made a mistake. You made a bad purchase. A timeshare is not an investment. It's a money pit that continues forever. If you use your timeshare, that's great. But if you don't and you want to legally get out of your contract, call my friends right now at the Timeshare Exit Hotline. They're an experienced team of lawyers who help good people like you get out of a timeshare contract that they just don't want. Don't throw away your money on maintenance fees. Use it for things you really want. We can help you end your timeshare contract and stop the money drain immediately. If you're ready to move on with your timeshare, call our team right now. Cancel your timeshare now with a free call. 800-289-0413. 800-289-0413. That's 800-289-0413. If you served in the Marine Corps, by now you know about the contaminated water problem at Camp Lejeune. If you were stationed or worked at Camp Lejeune from 1953 to 1987, you probably have a lot of questions. We have some answers. You could be entitled to compensation. Billions of dollars are being allocated to pay for damages to anyone stationed at Camp Lejeune during that time. Unfortunately, it appears that officials may have known the contaminated water problem existed and did little to protect their men. The Semper Fi Code was not honored. If you or someone in your family has developed a serious illness, including various forms of cancer, call this Camp Lejeune legal support line right now. You can't turn back the clock and change what happened, but you can certainly call right now and learn your rights as a Marine. Here's the number. Call 800-254-3218. 800-254-3218. That's 800-254-3218. Welcome back to DM Radio. Here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. All right, folks, back here on DM Radio. We're talking all things data mesh today on the show. We have Jamak Degani from Next Data, along with Sumit Pal and Doug Kimball of Ontotext. And uh, I was joking about how big a deal data mesh has become. Maybe I'll throw it back over to Sumit, and then we'll bring uh, Jamak and Doug back into the conversation. But Sumit, you know, you and I have been in this industry for a while. I remember how big data took off, then IoT took off, and was talking about IoT data, sensor data, et cetera, AI. You know, AI has been around for, I mean, it's been around for 50, 60 years, technically. We've gone through a couple AI winters. I don't think we're going through another AI winter. I think that the, the large language models are just so significant. And even though we haven't sorted out exactly how they're going to work yet, are such a big deal that the, the combination of AI models with data mesh, I think it's gonna generate a whole new era of applications and ways of doing business. But what do you think, Sumit? Absolutely, absolutely, yes. Um, I think um, my guess was, um, while at Gartner, I used to say to a lot of clients, this decade will probably be the decade of knowledge graphs until sort of LLM crashed our <laughs> <product>. <laughs> But I still think, you know, um, knowledge graphs have a lot to do to help LLMs, especially on the context side, right? Especially on the context side, validating the facts. And it's it's sort of a, it's it's sort of a, you know, 
bi-directional kind of thing that LLMs and knowledge graphs work. LLMs can leverage the context and the semantics that um, you know called knowledge graphs provide and prevent the LLMs from hallucinating while knowledge graphs while knowledge graphs can benefit from LLMs. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In terms of, you know, one of the lowest hanging fruits is to help build the queries, build the queries that are coming in, help in, help in building the right kind of prompts that go into LLMs to make sure that the right kind of, you know, answer and information gets back. So it's going to be sort of a, um, a collaborative thing going forward, in my opinion, with LLMs and knowledge graphs. Yeah. Or maybe I'll bring uh, Doug Kimball back in just to comment on that real quick. Doug, you know, you and I have talked about knowledge graphs for a while, and uh, I think that they are going to remain a foundational component of information management. They date back to the days of knowledge management. Remember knowledge management? That was going to save the world about 25 Mm -hmm. years ago and then never quite got there. I, I do think with the combination of data mesh as an architecture and large language models as this just tremendous creative generative uh, facilitator is going to fundamentally change how we're acting. It's going to help save a lot of time and effort. I think uh, Jamak was hinting at that. In the old architectures, there's so much additional work that is just not really necessary to get a particular business problem solved. And so it's like using tractors to move around small pieces of uh of, of dirt when you can just use your hands, for example. I mean, that's a bit of a strange analogy, but what do you think about the uh, just the, the coalescing of these technologies and how that's gonna affect business getting done? Uh, by the way, if you, want, if you want some knowledge management, I've got a SharePoint instance I can sell, sell you. It, it works great. <laughs> um, that's right, and, and I, 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 SharePoint, yeah. I, I like the analogy, and I think that's one of the things I, I find so intriguing and valuable about the data mesh concept, not just concept, but the, the practice is that to use your tractor and dirt analogy, ultimately, I don't care where the data I'm looking for is coming from. I don't care how I get it. I just want to ask a question to get an answer. The most simplistic process overall, we're just trying to solve for something. And I think that by, to your point, basically oversimplification of it is make it easy to get information to people's hands. If we if we look at all the things we're trying to do from a data standpoint, you know, we get into the crunchy, the details, the coding, the apps, et cetera. But fundamentally, it's about asking a question, getting the information, getting at the right information, getting it trusted, shared across the enterprise. That's what it matters to me. And I think that, yes, it is, I think, becoming more and more mainstream, more knowledge graphs, you know, they've been around for a while, but it's becoming more and more mainstream as people start to realize the impact that it has. Uh, I mean, chat GPT, a year ago, very few people heard about it. Now it's exploding. Right. I don't think knowledge graphs are quite there. I don't think data mesh is quite there, but it's starting to lead that direction. Yeah, I'll bring Jamak back into this. You know, you talk on your site about decentralization, and I think decentralization is the future. It's kind of funny when the whole data lake thing took off. I remember asking myself, are we making the same mistake again that we just made with enterprise data warehousing, where we're going to bring it all into one place and keep it there? And 
isn't it going to get bulky and slow and hard to find things, et cetera? And governance was an afterthought and things of this nature. Uh, but I think you are right that decentralization is the future, but maybe you could kind of walk us through how we're going to get there. Cause every company is going to have its own journey, its own path, its own processes. What are the, the leading edge companies you're working with? What are they tackling? How are they getting that job done? How is it, how is it actually shaking out? Yeah, so I guess all of the companies that you know I've seen taking you know taking data mesh as a strategy, they have similar attributes in terms of um, their complex organizations. The data resides, the data that they use resides within and outside of the organization, and they need to get timely access to it to, to a data that is trustworthy. And they all have pretty aspirational data. Um, missions and data visions, you know, they're, they're, many of their strategic initiatives rely on the data. So most of them have similar pain points, you know, the fragility and slowness of the system. They have made similar investments in the technology, the usual suspects that you search and you see data mesh appearing uh, in their advertisement, and um, they have similar challenges. So um, where they get started with, um, and I will at least I encourage them to get started is with this kind of a realistic assessment of his data mesh, the right thing for us. I see a lot of kind of enthusiastic um, kind of jumping on the bandwagon of data mesh, but without really um, the you know the honest assessment of is this right for us? Are we right. ready for it? Do we have the foundational pieces in place? Do we have the top down and bottom up kind of top down um, support of the organization and the kind of the bottom up readiness of the maturity of the infrastructure and automation right. and all of these practices that has to be in place? Um, organizations that I think are most successfully in their you know, are kind of applying data mesh and they're constitute, in, in fact, a, a large portion of our customers are the folks that, you know, they have a, um, a data advanced kind of business unit, a business unit that is more modern within the larger organization and their KPIs, you know, those business kind of owners, their KPIs depend on the you know, readily available data that they can trust and use. So they are motivated to be autonomous. They don't want to be bogged down with, you know, this big data team or data organization, but they can't also operate in isolation, right? They can't just go and build a data system in isolation where nobody else can access to their data and use it. So there are, there are those spearheads within large organizations um, to, to try data mesh, to show the art of possible, to get some quick value to demonstrate, you know, how it can be applied and contextualized to their organization and go from, and because data mission technology for it should allow for this incremental, iterative um, kind of evolutionary approach in building in the organization. You can go from one domain to another domain to another domain, interconnect those and the, that get enough of mass adoption to really leverage it at scale. I think contrary to that, the organizations that probably fail are the ones that have some sort of a big bang top-down transformation where you have to go and you know spend cycles of years to buy or build a platform on which you then want to build data mesh right so that's that's what i say let's not to start because it's a it's a very tall order to yeah. to create that sort of change and show show value fast enough you know our attention span and patience in getting value <laughs> from the technology are pretty pretty, pretty low like your initiative is is dead yes <laughs> yeah that makes a lot of sense you know Simit, i'm going to bring you back in 
because you had mentioned master data management and what Jamak is talking about here in terms of process, in terms of taking it slowly, focusing on one domain, getting that tackled, then maybe moving on to the next domain. That's what we did with master data management, right? You had PIM, product information management, as the first domain. Then you had some customer domains that you want to work on and some other things. But the key was to kind of get it right the first time. And there are some similarities in terms of what you're trying to achieve, right? Because in MDM, you're trying to virtually reconcile systems. That's the way I describe it. MDM allows you to virtually reconcile lots of different information systems that are themselves typically monoliths for a greater strategic goal of, of doing a better job knowing what's going on in the organization, what should we do, et cetera. I see some similarities, at least in terms of sort of rollout and execution, but what do you think about that, Sumit? Yeah, absolutely. I think organizations should think big but start small and then iterate, right? Build on one, build on one domain, learn, learn the fundamentals, learn the nuances before they go and start doing the similar kind of thing in another domain, right? And with the MDMs, as you know, you do things like entity disambiguation, entity resolution, knowledge graphs again play a very important role. There are a lot of MDM products out there that are built on top of the semantic, um, you know, underpinnings of knowledge graphs. Hmm. to do data reconciliation and make sure again that the MDM is is sort of um, you know the single single truth around the organization but again you have to start small and then build on top of it yeah and maybe Jamal I'll bring you back in just to kind of get into the weeds a bit you know obviously if you're going to start this journey it's great as you suggest uh, to do so in large organizations that have very complex topographies, if you will, a place where it's really going to make sense to put that extra effort in and to kind of get that right. But to me, the skunkworks concept comes to mind of, of having this sort of advanced analytics team of folks who are really trying to dig in and understand something. And you think big challenges like economics or life sciences or things that, that really require an appreciation of scale. That, I think, is where data mesh is going to be really powerful. What do you think? I agree and disagree. So I think I agree that, you know, we want to start small and have, you know, teams that are nimble and agile and do some skunk work around and get value. But really the value of the data mesh come to exist once you have a large enough mesh. Once you have enough of an interconnectivity that you can then create these higher order you know, data as value or as product on top. Most of the analytics, like if you look at the you know, any AI or ML kind of use case, even the simplest reporting use cases require data interconnected from very different, many different domains, right? Sure. <laughs> pick, pick an example in marketing. So I, I think while I, I'm, I'm a big fan of grassroots kind of movements and change, we have to be realistic that we need enough of that grassroots and the skunk work connected um, for, for, for data mesh really um, deliver the value. And I think that is, um, you know, the balance that sometimes gets lost on us and because just the technology is missing there is that how can we arrive at, you know, concepts conceptually, the outcome of things like master data management without repeating the same mistakes of the past mm. in how we implement those? Because in the past, many of these concepts are very idealistic you know, that we will, we shall have one single source of truth. We have, <laughs> have we'll have one sense definition of customer. And from practice, we know that's absolutely impossible because the moment you try to centralize and aggregate all of these fast, different facets of the customer in one entity, the moment you define it is out of date. 
because the customer aspects in one corner of your organization just change because the business is digitalized, you know, it's, it's, it's moving rapidly. They just introduced a new customer channel or capability. So, so I think that's where, you know, the, the balance between what data machine tries to do is this concept that we really need to have, like the single, you know, understanding or reliable understanding of who these customers are. Hmm. but yet have a very decentralized, maybe skunk worky or um, kind of domain focused way of emerging these definitions. Uh, again, that's, that's, that gets lost in translation sometimes when we talk about this or when we think about, okay, we need to have a semantic graph of how these entities relate to each other, right? How do I know that this order is connected to the same customer that called us on the call center, you know? support system, all of this interconnected, but how do we get there um, in a new way where these are emergent phenomena as opposed to a layer smeared and defined top down on top? Because we have no choice right now, we've got a bunch of like data that wasn't initially created as a product, that, that it was a semantic first definition of a data creation of a data product. So we have no choice right now by try to like smear on top these definitions but the moment we define them again they're out of date right because they're not defined bottom up and emergence so I, I think the movement that needs to happen around the technology moving forward is to think about this data product first semantic first quality first approach in building the basics that even the basic foundational elements of data sharing that more sophisticated and rich you know, layers of information and knowledge can emerge from it as opposed to, well, data is garbage and we don't really understand it. Let's, let's push down a definition on top. And that's the switch that needs to happen. And that's kind of, I think, the space for innovation again, to uh, to rethink the, the fundamental units of data sharing so that we can get graphs of knowledge almost for free, right? That, so this is a very interesting point. And I think I'm really onto what you're saying, Shamak. I think it's very... Uh, telling, because what you're saying is that you can have your view of the world, right? And let's call that a schema. So I've got my view of the world, and I apply this schema to all the data that I have, and that's now how I understand the data. But what you're saying is maybe you need to listen a bit more and look at the relationships before you go trying to superimpose this schema onto that world, because maybe that schema doesn't fit for all use cases. Maybe there are other things you haven't considered, and you need to take more of a, a discovery-oriented approach toward realizing what schema you want in which sort of environment. So you're trying to be yeah. more reflective of the world. But yeah, let's pick this up for the next segment, folks. Don't touch that, that will be right. What if you could own a piece of the future? What if you could build your next castle, not on sand, but on the bedrock of a modern blockchain ecosystem? The first internet gold rush made millionaires. The second wave is minting billionaires. But the third wave is just gathering now and anyone can get in on the action. Hop online to crowdpointtech.com to learn how you can secure a foothold in the blockchain revolution. Whatever your passion, wherever you want to go in life, there's an opportunity awaiting you right now. Go to crowdpointtech.com to learn how the blockchain will fuel the next generation of innovation in this globally connected world. That's crowdpointtech.com, your trusted agent in an untrusted world. What's the longest-running radio show in the world focused on data? DM Radio. Want to be a guest sometime? Send an email to info at dmradio.biz. That's info at dmradio.biz. What if you could own a piece of the future? 
What if you could build your next castle, not on sand, but on the bedrock of a modern blockchain ecosystem? The first internet gold rush made millionaires. The second wave is minting billionaires. But the third wave is just gathering now, and anyone can get in on the action. Hop online to crowdpointtech.com to learn how you can secure a foothold in the blockchain revolution. Whatever your passion, wherever you want to go in life, there's an opportunity awaiting you right now. Go to crowdpointtech.com to learn how the blockchain will fuel the next generation of innovation in this globally connected world. That's crowdpointtech.com, your trusted agent in an untrusted world. What's the longest running radio show in the world focused on data? DM Radio. Want to be a guest sometime? Send an email to info at dmradio.biz. That's info at dmradio.biz. When a player's sudden cardiac event brought a national football game to a halt, it shone a spotlight on the importance of CPR readiness. Now, with youth sports in full swing, the American Heart Association is rallying parents and coaches to be ready in an emergency. To be ready, learn hands-only CPR. It's a skill anyone can learn in minutes. Just visit heart.org slash hands-only CPR. Hands-only CPR is nationally supported by Elevance Health Foundation. Each year, 350,000 Americans die from a cardiac arrest. When seconds matter most, CPR can be the difference in whether a friend or family member survives. That's why the American Heart Association is challenging every household to elect at least one person to learn CPR. If you have 90 seconds, you can be your family's CPR hero. Just watch the American Heart Association's hands-only CPR video at heart.org and become a hero. Do you need to get your hands on some extra money right now? Maybe $25,000 or more? If you're a homeowner, now is the perfect time to get cash out while homes in many neighborhoods like yours have gone up in value. You can use the money for anything. It's yours. You can buy an investment property, pay off higher interest debt, or make home improvements. If you need $25,000, $50,000, or more, now is the time. Home values are up, and so is your equity. We offer you a way to use it. No need to use your savings. Call New American Funding now and see how much cash out you can get. Call 800-710-3739. 800-710-3739. That's 800-710-3739. NMLS 6606. www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. This is not an offer or commitment to lend. Subject to borrower and property qualifications. Not all borrowers will qualify. Terms and conditions. Welcome back to DM Radio. Here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. All right, folks, back here on DM Radio, a fascinating discussion of data mesh and knowledge graphs and kind of where we've been, where we're going and all this stuff. Uh, and first, maybe I'd like to uh, submit, pal, to comment on what we were just saying there in that last segment. I, I like this sort of challenging of the orthodoxy, which is really what's going on, right? It's that we've had these ways of doing things, of forcing structure onto the world, but it is an abstraction. You know, as a philosophy major, I, I, I majored in deconstruction. So I'm all about tearing stuff down to see what we can get from uh, the reconstruction of it all. But what do you think about uh, Jamak's comments there about really trying to, to be more appreciative of what is emergent in your organization, in your data? Go ahead, Sumit. Yeah, I think that is the whole goal of data mesh, right? To have a more decentralized thinking with 
data experts in each of the domains, whether you're building your MDM or whether you're building your data catalog, which is, again, could be, you know, like like, like in the data mesh, there is there are sort of two data catalogs, right? A data catalog that is very domain or node data node centric, as well as an enterprise data catalog, which sort of connects the different um, different nodes together, um, the, dif the different domains together. So you have also have a centralized um, way of accessing and doing the data discovery. And each of these data nodes feed into the, the data catalogs and each of the data nodes feed into the enterprise data catalog. Hmm. Cool, I like that. Uh, Doug, uh, maybe I could bring you back into the equation <laughs> here too. Uh, I, I like this reconstruction of what we've been doing. And I think it, the time is nigh for that. I think that's why it's happening right now is because, you know, systems get so big, entropy comes into play sooner or later and things sort of fall apart. And I kind of think that's where we are. That's why you're seeing, you went from data warehouse, to data lake to data lake house and like all these different architectures. Well, it's like the, the NoSQL movement, right? I remember when NoSQL came along and I remember when MapReduce was gonna solve all the world's problems. Uh, so these these individual changes in what's happening in the industry they happen for reasons and then we have to kind of figure out all right what did we do wrong what did we do right it feels to me like the, there are a couple movements that are coming together quite succinctly data mesh is definitely one of them i still think knowledge graphs are going to be really important no matter how you deploy them or how you manage them but it's probably going to be in coordination with these things but just real quick thoughts from you doug on how to synthesize all this it's interesting, Sam and I had a chat not too long ago about what is old is still new. And so a lot of what we're talking about to me are not nothing really dramatically new concepts. These are things we've been dealing with for quite a while. So if I was to synthesize it, again, I, I, I mean, I'm an, I'm an oversimplified thinker. I got two very, very smart people. I'm the conceptual marketing guy, but you know, it, it's, we're using building blocks of data. You know, I always like to talk about Lego. We're using building blocks of data. We're connecting them we're giving more ability for them to be decentralized, played with, shared in different fashions. And that's what we're doing from my mind is how we're synthesizing this whole process together is making those building blocks of data more accessible, more findable, et cetera. And that's what I think the knowledge graph has the ability to make those relationships, knowledge graphs have the ability to make those relationships that allow that data to be shared. Yeah, that's cool. And Jim, I'll throw this over to you. Uh, to put more context around this. So from your website, you have a line where you say, we do for data what containers and web APIs did for software. That's a very interesting statement because with APIs, of course, we changed how data gets accessed. We changed how applications are built, basically. I mean, just look at, uh, at GitHub in and of itself and how much that changed how applications are designed and then how they actually run, how the code is called, et cetera. So could you go into a bit more detail about what you mean by that and how that actually works? Sure. Um, yeah, so so at Next Data, we, we thought about, we had the luxury of, I guess, with being a fresh new company and, and think, think about this fundamentally differently. Um, if you think about what containers did for applications, containers by definition create an aggregation or abstraction around different structural components that are required to run an app, right? Mm -hmm. So they, they contain it, they create an abstraction, they created a packaging around, they created developer tooling around it. We're doing a similar thing for the data product. So if you think about what constitutes a data product, how, what is this unit, right? The, what that's, allows data to be shared, discovered, governed as a product, this unit involves many different structural components, it involves the code that's generating that data, it involves the policies that govern that data, it involves the definition of the data model that 
is representing that data. So we're, and a few other things. So we are creating containerization system that abstracts all of those disparate pieces into one unit. And we, we, we call this a data product container again, um, the data itself is not contained to it, but references to data management, the versioning of that data is contained within sure. it. And then we're providing a developer tooling upstream, not downstream after data was produced, as upstream as possible. At the moment of creation of the data, we create these building blocks, allow creating data products as the first class building blocks of data sharing. And then the API around it is, okay, if you think about how this data is analytics and AI world being used then and how it needs to be discovered, how it needs to be governed. There's a set of APIs that every data product in an autonomous way shares and those APIs enable discovery and understanding and control and then access the data, particularly for analytics and AI. Um, so that's kind of the, the API side of it. And we absolutely intend to open source pieces of this, the API part of it, perhaps the containerization part of it, so that, um, you know, other vendors can go and build systems around it. Um, so that's the, I hope that's a, that was a close enough analogy to what containers and APIs did, which was, you know, isolation of applications, um, lifecycle management by small yeah. teams and developer experience that allowed that. Sure, it, it makes a whole heck of a lot of sense. That's an excellent explanation. It does speak to me about the the size of the challenge and the amount of work that you folks are having to do right now to enable that. Because, and just to explain to the audience, these containers, they have what, what is basically a wrapper. And in that wrapper, there's instructions about what to do. It's basically what the little ridges on a Lego do. They're like, okay, this is how I fit in. And once I'm in there, I release this and it does that basically. And she's talking about doing that for day, which is very, very interesting. We have a very good question from one of our studio audience members. And folks, if you want to be in the studio audience, hop online to dmradio.biz and you can register for these to, when you be, to be part of the conversation when they're recorded. But one of our attendees asked, I'll throw it to you, Shamak, uh, and then maybe Sumit if you want to comment on it. How strong does the governance of a data mesh implementation have to be to, for example, semantically connect different data products? Yeah, think? I would... Absolutely. So, so I think a strong is a subjective word, and if we say strong, they can it can be interpreted. I need to have a very strong, you know, governance team <laughs> having their eyes on there. So right. I would say how maybe I change that question. I would say how automated and how built in the governance need to be in the flow of data generation or data product generation. So uh, governance is a fundamental opinion. It, it, in fact, when I first wrote the you know first article or opinion piece on, on data mesh, um, I didn't have computational governance or federated governance as a pillar in itself. It was kind of smeared in, 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 in other aspects. And then very quickly, I realized that this has to be in its own you know pillar and, and get enough attention. And that was the you know, as we were in the field working with early customers in, you know, materializing data mesh, it became apparent that it has to be, and, and it is. So and the reason is called computational governance. Again, lessons learned, as you mentioned earlier, um, from operational systems, we had to automate, you know, zero trust architecture and a whole others, you know, category of observability and so on for make it possible. And I think it's the same. I would think about governance as something that gets built in, like aspect of governance is standardization, aspect of governance is privacy, that has to be built in 
to again unit of your data exchange and then tooling around it to be able to observe it and identify anomalies or errors and recover it and all of that needs to come to exist and that's a very strong governance without centralized control without centralized point of synchronization across you know a centralized team um so very strong but automated yes durable let's say durable and efficient maybe efficient is the word i mean strong you think uh hard-coded you think no you must get this approval from that person and these sort of manual processes are what we need to get away from so that's why you're saying we have to automate as much of this as possible even if it's an automated alert to another system just to check something to make sure it's okay there are lots of different ways to do that well closing thoughts uh sumit pal we got about a minute and a half left having absorbed all this information about data mesh architecture and where the industry is going and the importance of knowledge graphs, uh, what are your closing thoughts on what the business should be focused on right now in, in planning their journey? Oh, you're on mute. You're on mute. Oh, he's on mute. He doesn't hear me. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Take um, it so yeah, I think we discussed a lot about the technology aspect of how knowledge, how knowledge graphs and data mesh they all play together. But data mesh also is a is a huge cultural and an organizational shift from um, the way organizations have been building their their systems, and I think that's also an important part in that that plays in the success of adoption of data mesh within an organization. How organizations are going to culturally adapt to this new way of doing things way of building data products very new things like data contracts things like absolutely. that absolutely absolutely that's a fantastic closing quote folks look these folks up online jamak degani from next data and sumit pal kcaa radio has openings for one hour talk shows if you want to host a radio show now is the time make kcaa your flagship station our rates are affordable and our services are second to none we broadcast to a population of five million people plus we stream and podcast on all major online audio and video systems if you've been thinking about broadcasting a weekly radio program on real radio plus the internet contact our ceo at 281-599-9800 281-599-9800. You can Skype your show from your home to our Redlands, California studio where our live producers and engineers are ready to work with you personally. A radio program on KCAA is the perfect work from home avocation in these stressful times. Just type kcaaradio.com into your browser to learn more about hosting a show on the best station in the nation or call our CEO for details. 281-599-9800. You're on board KCAA's Inland Talk Express. KCAA, Loma Linda, 1050 AM, the station that leaves no listener behind. You're listening.